Welcome back to How AI Built This, the podcast dedicated to data and entrepreneurial storytelling. As always, we're brought to you by the wonderful people at Cathcart Technology, um, technology recruitment experts, and Fuzzy Labs open source MLOps aficionados. Today on the show, I'm excited to be speaking to Jacopo Tagliabue, uh, Director of AI at Coveo, who I've written down here are the relevance company aiming to democratize artificial intelligence. Welcome to the show, Apo. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, guys. We'll jump into what relevance means in terms of AI. Um, it's actually really, uh, it's really interesting, and, and what you and the Coveo team are doing. But we will, uh, we'll kick off with a kind of walk through your education and career history to set the scene of kind of how you got to where you are now. So why don't you give us a quick background, kind of on you pre setting up your own company, and then we can dive into that in, in a few minutes' time. Sure. Um, I mean, I'll start from the. I'll start from, I wouldn't say from the beginning that would, that would be too much and too boring. But I, but I start <laughs> with with a, with a bunch of with a bunch of random facts. They're not that. They turns out to be not that random. So my interest in language and reasoning started in high school when I read a book called Godel Escher and Bach by Douglas of Stutter, and that kind of kickstarted my interest in 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 that in that in that time was mostly logic based reasoning. As you know, I'm old enough to remember when AI was mostly about you know no monotonic logic and stuff. Um, my 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 degree actually decided to study. Uh, wasn't I was undecided because of that to study math or philosophy, and I got a philosophy degree um, with a focus on you know logic and ontology, philosophy of minds, something very related to to AI. Um, then during my PhD, I kind of started broadening a bit my horizons. Um, I work a bit in cognitive sciences. I was uh, working in a theoretical computer science department. My dissertation was a bit of a bit of everything, so to speak. Um, and in the meantime, I started kind of picking up some work in the industry on the coding side. Um, so I never really had formal coding introduction. Like I never took a formal coding classes, which probably explains why I suck at that <laughs> even, even to these days. But at least I got some start during, during those times. And uh, a person that I'm, a friend that I met uh, at MIT was starting a company in New York and wanted me to be the senior scientist there. And I always wanted to live in New York. So he called me back and I'm like, okay, come to New York. So I came to New York and I, and I spent a couple of fantastic years being the lead scientist of this startup. And then I left uh, to, to build Tuzo in, in San Francisco with a bunch of friends and kind of being an entrepreneur. But then, you know, that's, that's a completely different story. Yeah, no, no. It's, uh, th- thank you for the background. And before the New York move, that was you were in, based in Italy, right? You were in Milan. I was based in Milan, exactly. I was based in Milan, exactly. Absolutely, exactly. I was based in Milan. Yeah. Nice. And some of the work experience you got, so I noticed on, on your LinkedIn, like you did a role in data science for a professional basketball team. like. And when you look at the dates on your LinkedIn, like this was kind of before the big hype and like boom of data scientists. And you mentioned not having that coding background. So do you think because of the timing of it looking back you got to have quite a lot of like fun and experimentation and learning on the job because it wasn't really there wasn't lots of opportunities to be a data scientist so you kind of get to carve out a little bit your own path almost absolutely so first i mean if i wouldn't get a job like right now i wouldn't get the job that my team does because the level is so high right now you know, even in coding and stuff that totally, I, I, you know, that's the joke that, you know, every manager has that they couldn't get the job that they're hiring for. And in my case, it's totally, my day is totally true. Um, in that sense, it was cool because it kind of, I'm always like the, to being like an end-to-end kind of like vision person. 
So I really like to decide what I want to work on and ask the rest question. I always say, is, you know, the difference between a good scientist and a, and a, and a bad one is, is, the, is the solutions. But the difference between a great scientist and a good one is the question. And so kind of answering the good, asking a good question is for me has always been like, 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 like the most important thing. And in 2009, so I was a kid, I was 20, 22 at the time, and nobody was doing basketball analytics too, or maybe, you know, few people on earth were doing that, certainly not in Europe. And so it was a very cool, it was a very cool way to mix two things that I, that I sort of know well, or sort of know well, which is statistics and basketball. Uh, and looking back, it was a, it was horrible. Like everything that I built was terrible. But looking back, it was really pioneer. Like it was really pioneer. It was like you know years before Brad Pitt's movie and Moneyball. Now, of course, everybody do that analytics for sports. Uh, but at that time, it was it was pretty it was a pretty cool, as you say, uh, venturing into a, an explore path. So it was it was a pretty fun thing. Yeah, that's sometimes the thing when I'm speaking to people like you on the show that have been in this world for a while. Like you almost got to like find out and do your own stuff before every... So now you can do a master's in AI or a PhD in AI, or you get all these incredible computer scientists who understand machine learning systems. Like, it is a different... It's a different field now, in a good way, but and sometimes, I suppose, from looking back, you also probably got to make more mistakes and have a bit more fun without some of the kind of... I don't know, kind of the red tape that comes with AI now. But yeah, hey, that, that is what it is. And also you did a bit of work, like the consultancy. And so you worked for a consultancy and you've also worked for end users before you made that move to, to the state. So did that give you a slightly different appreciation working on both sides of the fence? Yeah, so um, I think working with, with, with customers of like, you know, let's say requirement-based work is saying, you know, you, you don't have your product per se, but you, you go in, you try to understand the problem of the customer, you build a solution, you end it off. I think it gives you an appreciation of the complexity of operationalizing your knowledge into another context, another culture. And one of the things that, that, it, that it's good about consult is that it gets you exposed to many, many novel ideas. Like it's, a, it's kind of a drug, you know, new ideas all the time, novel project and so on. But on the downside, it also makes you appreciative of how important is that that consultancy project fits into a good company culture because otherwise you're just going to build POC and prototype after prototype. And when you leave, you give these people the keys, but they have no means of actually making anything out of it. Not because the project is not working, but because there's a cultural gap that is not easily fixed by an end over PowerPoint presentation. So yeah. when, when you turn and being an entrepreneur and you build a product, which is a very different job, but you always kind of, remi- you have to remind yourself that your product is going to be used in an organization that is not necessarily living by the same value or talent or ideas that your own team has. And so that kind of gives you a humbling and kind of gives you a bit of perspective of, you know, how to make things work in the real world. Yeah. No, we had a really interesting discussion on the last episode with um, a guy called Josh Monk and he had went from large consultancies into Red Bull, who are obviously a massive company. And he was used to leaving the keys with the company, like you said. And then now suddenly he was given the keys in Red Bull and got to make all the decisions. And he's kind of like, well, I need to make sure I make the right decisions now because this is mine. Like, There's a different feeling, I suppose, to like owning it internally than, than being a consultant. And I suppose it's good from your experience, though, to to have worked on both sides to understand how it works and and I suppose the right questions to ask as well. Yeah. And I, I think there's a, yeah, like the, the, the most successful project I've been on is when there was like a very, very 
tight alignment between the people inside and the people outside. Uh, because the more they care, the more they put in into the project. I know they pay you to do something, but at the end of the day, they have to put in something as well. And the more they put in next to you, the more, in my experience, they typically get out of it. If it just, uh, you know, do your thing and then come back two months later, sure, you do the job and it's working. But in my experience, the long-term impact of that tends to be, you know, less spectacular, so to speak. Yeah. No, I can even see that in, in the role that I do now with, with Fuzzy Labs. Like, the customers that have the most questions the most um like they're super inquisitive about every single tool that we choose every single like thing that we do they're the ones that yeah they really want it to succeed the ones that don't really have any questions are kind of just asking like you said for a proof of concept a prototype and then it just gets put in the shelf with everything else and then it's like it's a frustrating thing from for a technical person on our side who's built that like you want to see these things being used, like you want to see them working. That's the whole point, right? Yeah, that's you know that's the pride of the craft, right? You want to build something that people at the end at the end of, at the end use, right? Or they're like, you know, again, like building prototype in POC, it's fun, and you know, I can I can totally attest to that. I I do that a lot, uh, but at the end of the day, it is nothing like the satisfaction of knowing that like millions of people, you know, unknowing like without knowing, uh, they're actually using what you what you build with your laptop, and I think that's a very distinctive type of you know pride and, and satisfaction yeah it's a pretty cool way to look at it actually yeah something you built with your laptop and yeah it affects so many people and then we're kind of i mean we're obviously fast forwarding a little bit you mentioned the move to new york and stuff so like you mentioned early 2017 or so you moved to san francisco and started uh Tuso, which is was an nlp startup and you mentioned you did that with friends right yes yes two people so when we started Tuso as a um how do you say that like weekend project or something like that. It was like yeah. me in New York, Chiro in Belgium and Mattia in Germany. So we come, we both come from the same university. They are older than me, as you, as you can see by looking at them. I'm <laughs> but, like, but, you, but, but, but we come from the same universe. So we all had this, we all took part of this bachelor that was very interdisciplinary, as I mentioned. And then everybody went on doing different things. Mattia on decision science, uh, Chiro neuro, neuroscience and linguistics and more me on like computational cognitive science and so on and so forth. And so we kind of regroup after years and we start working on this in our spare time. And at some point, you know, we decided to make a move. We got a, we got a basically accepted into one of the top accelerators in Silicon Valley. And so everybody packed his own bag and we met in San Francisco, um, and, you know, to, to start the new adventure. That's cool. And when you were building... I suppose when it started as the kind of weekend project and then as it became more and more obvious that it was going to probably become something, what was like, what was the initial plan? Like when you guys were sitting down, writing down what this company could be, like where did, what did you want it to be? And is that what it ended up? Uh, so <laughs> so the, the answer is no, but let's start with the first one. <laughs> uh, and then, then we explain why the answer is no to the second one. So um, we started, Chir and I, uh, the first time we discussed about this was in a brewery, in a microbrewery in Milan. That's why we always joked between ourselves from IPA to IPO, when, when Coveo went IPO. <laughs> because that's really where the, story, where the story started. And we wanted to, so Chiro again, is a neuroscientist, is a linguist. And we kind of wanted to... Um, to work on search algorithms, right? Remember, this is like 2016. So it's before large language module, before Bird, before a lot of stuff, right? Before a lot of stuff. And, uh, you know, Google didn't have the, the knowledge card that now they have when you search for Beyonce or something like that. So, and yeah. the problem we find with most search engine, which honestly is still relevant today, but we can discuss that, 
is that they don't really try to understand to, to try to understand anything about what you mean. Like you can you can have it to work around search engine, not vice versa. It's not the search engine trying to understand humans, it's you trying to learn how to keyword your way out of a problem. And then that happens again continuously, especially outside of Google, like when you when you try and buy stuff, for example. And the idea was like, why don't we use our knowledge of how humans understand language? You know, the little we know, but we know something about this, and kind of build the new search algorithms. And that's and that's where we started playing around with some ideas. Uh, and then when we brought Matteo on board, uh, because he had some experience in digital transformation and like handling large e-commerce, he was like, well, e-commerce could be a good target application for this type of this type of tech. Why? Because it's very easy to prove ROI, as in if your search engine works better, people are going to make more money. So, you know, it's kind, it's kind of relatively, you know, on paper, is a relatively straightforward connection when you have to make a sale. Um, and of course, B, because the e-commerce is a giant market and the state of e-commerce search is abysmal. Uh, and, uh, and so it was like, well, so let's, let's take this and put it into e-commerce. Our first prototype, very few people know this, our first prototype was on Rotten Tomato on, on movie data. Yeah. So it was this search engine will allow you to, to, to move inside Rotten Tomato with language. But it was fairly clever. So it was, it was, if you didn't remember the name of somebody, you could just say, I don't know, last three movies by the director of The Godfather. And, and the system was smart enough to resolve the director of The Godfather uh, and, then, and then kind of like, you know, do all of that inside. So it, it was a toy thing on movies, but that was our first real Tuzo that nobody ever saw, basically. Uh, and then we kind of turned that into an e-commerce into an e-commerce search engine when we actually made this into a company, like a real company. Yeah, no, 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 it makes sense. And I suppose there's part of that is like, it was a really good combination of the technology being very good and your domain experience being really good. And then also from one of your co-founders to kind of spot the e-commerce opportunity. Because I think quite often people have good technical solutions, but they're not quite sure where it fits or they don't or maybe they go too broad as well like oh we could use this everywhere where i mean e-commerce is a big enough thing to challenge without trying to do other stuff absolutely absolutely uh i think it was a fortuitous combination of a bunch of skills which i think what made the team um like working and, and you know and valuable and, and and so on um it, it was also a, a bit of luck or like you know as, as everything in life like i think there's a lot of like building a startup, especially in the Silicon Valley way, it's a very specific way of building companies, not recommended to everybody. There's a lot of downsides to it. Like, you know, like, you know, let's not, you know, like, you know, fetishize, you know, like the only way of building company. But if you like that sort of stuff and you want to build a venture-backed company with, with certain type of, of, of features, um, uh, it's very important that all of these things align. It's very important you have a good market. It's very important you have a good tech. It's very important you have a good team. Uh, and it's very important to have luck. Like, I think people don't play that a lot. Like at least half of our success was luck. Luck not as in you stay in your in your couch and people and things fall down from the sky. That's not the meaning of luck. But meaning there's a lot of things you don't control because your startup is so small compared to the environment. You're a small yeah. agent in a big environment. And there's a lot of things that happen that you have no control over. And some things just go, go in your favor, some things just don't. And a lot of your final success is often going to be determined by small things that happens along the path. One of them, which is the, the thing you don't control the most, once you started, is timing. Like timing is one of the most important things for for companies to succeed, yeah. and it's almost not in any of your, your power to make that happen to to some extent. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. And did you guys have that kind of 
relatively relaxed attitude whilst starting the company and starting to see customers come in and get success like did you guys keep that kind of mentality of like you would just keep building what you were building and bringing customers on board but you weren't like were you were you trying to be acquired like was that a focus or was it just if we keep doing this something could happen uh, the latter and uh, and now I understand very well the difference between a company that has built to be acquired uh, it's, it's a very silicon valley thing to do but you know if you didn't if you don't live there you don't you never really seen in your life like in italy nobody builds company to be acquired and yeah. some, that's just a thing and in europe in general like the, the acquisition scene is very different but after you spend a bit of time in silicon valley now i can kind of spot companies they want to be acquired <laughs> just by looking at the website uh, no we were trying to build a business we had like you know six paying clients in, in in a couple of years we were processing hundreds of millions of them per day uh, so the company was on our data side we have a huge data asset um we were trying to grow the business by by getting better accounts as in people that would want to pay more but that's the that's a trick search is very important and very hard to do so if you do it well you can actually outsmart a lot of people that even runs gigantic e-commerce but search is a crucial piece of a website so a gigantic e-commerce won't outsource it to a company of seven people because you didn't have the lawyers to make that happen. Like you're not going to pass procurement. There's a lot of problems that we discovered just by building a company. If you want to go a bit up the market, there's going to be factors that have nothing to do with how good you are that will prevent you from being successful. So we started to partner up with companies that have the kind of infrastructure and procurement and lawyer and funding and insurance and all this, and all this stuff to, you know, to, to be taken seriously by, you know, by, by some of the largest commerce on the planet. And one of these conversations turns into to be, well, guys, you're like, you know, we believe what you're doing is fantastic. We want to be in this space. We don't have a product doing that. We want to buy your company and clients and so on and so forth and so on. And so at the end of the day, that was the decision that was made. And I think everybody walked away happy from investors, our self-employees, you know, acquirer and so on and so forth. Um, yeah. But it, it was intentional. It was, the company was obviously, if you look at it, with, with an expertise, you know, that the company wasn't built to be acquired. Um, it was built to kind of try and grow a business. Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, and maybe this is because of being from the UK, but that seems like the way to do it rather than like from day one hiring people. And you almost create a culture that isn't really real if your entire goal is to be acquired. Like if you're the CEO of a company and you're trying to get people to really buy into what you're doing and, and the technology behind it all, if everyone knows deep down that the first offer, they'll run out the door, it's actually quite hard to build that. Whereas you guys, I imagine, had just like everyone was pulling in the same direction. You had some really good clients, really good product. And by chance, like you said, from a partner, there was an acquisition. Like that, that feels like a nice way of doing it. But maybe that's just, like I said, from not being in that kind of Silicon Valley world. No, I, I think it's a nice way of framing that. I, some of the most successful acquisition of all time for employee investors and companies has been by companies that are obviously built to be acquired. The, 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 the case that everybody knows in the UK. It is the UK case, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an exception. It's DeepMind, of course, which obviously yeah. wasn't meant to be a company in the first place. But it's a very different type of company. You're not building a product. Or you're not even trying to build a product. You're building expertise that nobody else has on the planet. And for certain type of companies, which unfortunately, and that's a problem with Europe, they exist only in the United States, this type of knowledge and power is very valuable. And so, you know, Google paid whatever, $700 million or something like that for like 40 people, 50 people, whatever. Yeah. Um, they didn't have any revenue, didn't have any product, didn't have anything, just, just literally won the people. And, and this is something that is like, wait, that's an extraordinary case. 
but there's a lot of cases like that in Silicon Valley. And with all the bad things about Silicon Valley, I think the American market understand the value of talent and kind of grow your talent through acquisition and making good offer way more than the European, in my experience, the way more than the European mindset. Uh, like yeah. there are a lot of large corporations in Europe that we could just bootstrap their AI by buying super talented teams and just buy them, like, you know, buy the startup. But at the end of the day, that doesn't really happen. Uh, in the United States, where companies are way more advanced than AI, they still keep on buying talent because they know that, you know, because they're kind of hoarding that, you know, because if, if they don't buy it, somebody else is going to buy them. Yeah. And so now the talent is somewhere else. And so this is idea that, you know, we're competing for knowledge, which is very clear in Silicon Valley or, or New York. It's not at all clear in the in Europe, and I think that reflects in a lot of work culture. How much equity you give to your employees, if any, what type of salaries and benefits are available, and you know, and all of that is obviously related to to this. Yeah, none of that all makes sense. You've probably underplayed it a little bit, but like the company that that you guys were acquired by were uh, a kind of billion dollar tech unicorn that wanted to to bring you on, like you said, which is like, I mean, that that's pretty like bucket list type stuff for a lot of founders where a unicorn will come up a unicorn company worth a billion dollars or more said we want to we want to buy you guys so that, that must have been quite surreal for for you and the two other guys that had set up this company only what three years before yeah yeah it was uh it was yes so good looking back it wasn't that unexpected you know not now with insights like you know it was kind of a natural fit for many reasons but at the time of course it was a very exciting moment Coveo bought us when they were, I don't know, 400 people, something like that, approximately. But then it grew to other massive round of funding of hundreds of millions of dollars and then became public. And now there's almost maybe a thousand people. Uh, so we, we, we kind of got the, you know, the IPA to IPO stuff, went through garage phase, product market fit, basically being acquired by a scale up, like a large scale up. And then going all the way to, you know, to basically being, being, being a public company. Uh, and it's been a, a kind of a learning journey for us as we we've been able to, I always say that I'm not the, the best one at, at, at data or the best one in modeling, uh, but I built a build end to end system from garage to, to kind of like, you know, thousands of like fortune 500 clients. Um, so I've seen all of this, like I made so many mistakes at so many scale that at least I built a bit of experience in, in, in these type of things. Yeah. And it's one of those things people always say that like, a couple of years in a fast growing startup is worth 10 years in a big company or whatever. And you could probably, yeah, I mean, wrap up huge amounts of experience in just that, like starting weekend potential company to sell into Coveo. So yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense. So like, yeah, you guys ended up in that e-commerce space for search using really cool NLP technology and helping, were you helping companies target consumers better or were you helping consumers find things like yeah was it was a b2b yeah it was a b2b was was what was the same so we were providing basically a, like an api that's like you go to a website and you and you start searching and then you press enter and what happens is that of the website producing the result page with you know ranking and so on yeah. they're gonna call our server and then we're gonna produce a ranking that we believe is for this user for whatever reason the best one and then the user is just going to see the page. The user doesn't even know that Tuzo or Coveo is behind the scene. The user is yeah. just going to interact with the website normally. And then it just, it we're just going to ingest all this behavioral data in the meantime to continue to optimize this behind, behind the scene. Um, nice. So, yeah. And then before Coveo bought Tuzo, 
what what did they do um and then kind of like you said they didn't have a product like yours so why did that relate to kind of being a good fit for them because the company had grown massively through the success of another product line which is customer service that is the type of box you find online when people you know you know you break your screen and you go on a website and you want just to fix it or to know how to return it or something like that and the company grew massively on that through a partnership with with uh, with salesforce and uh, e-commerce was a very new thing i think that like a some 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 let's say custom some some prototype in that space because some of their clients they were using the service space actually than e-commerce and so kobe was like well with the search maybe maybe it's something in another market that we can penetrate with you know with all this funding and so on but when they bought Tuzo, it was very early days, wasn't even an official line of business uh, and so on. And kind of the acquisition of Tuzo was kind of like also philosophically the company saying, hey, we're doing this in e-commerce. AI is important. Like it was it was making a bunch of statements together. Like yeah. we had a global company. So it was the first acquisition for Coveo. So so we're starting acquiring companies like, you know, like the big guys do. Um, you know, we have people now in the United States doing AI at you know this level, I would say. And, and third, these people have e-commerce expertise and we want to build on top of that. So I think it's a combination of, the, of this thing that made it, that made it a, good, a good idea. Yeah. And in those early days, like, did your role and the other founders, uh, Tuzo, did your roles change like loads overnight? Uh, the role changed, changed quite a bit um, uh, because, well, uh, first, we, we're not working all, to, all together in the same team anymore. Uh, we still work very closely to each other, but now it's a big org. So, you know, now, now that these three, <laughs> there's these three you have to navigate. So of course we, we always, we always, we always work in, in, in similar project, but we, we don't report to the same people, for example, and, and so on and so forth. And the other thing, of course, is that especially, you know, like I used to, to do a lot of hands-on, like, like a lot of hands-on stuff as the company's small and, you know, your CTO and you kind of build the entire thing for the first time before bringing people on board. So you kind of also know what everything is. Now going to a company that has hundreds of people like you, probably better than you, and many of this single stuff, right? So I, I can I can just focus on what I do best. So the good thing about so the good the good and bad thing about big company is that or bigger companies is that you know you, you can focus on where your higher marginal value is. Um, and in my case, it's totally not building APIs. I can do that. I totally not doing SQL. I can totally do that as well. But but it's not you know there's a lot of people that are way better than me and can be utilize way more effective for, for the cost we pay for them. Um, so for me, it was more of like, okay, now I have lessons on stuff to do, but there's a tons of ideas that we had in the time that we didn't, that we couldn't flesh out, both yeah. in the open source space and the research space. And why don't we take some time, which is something that I uniquely qualified to do in a company, but why don't we take some time to, you know, to kind of like unwrap this and build a roadmap that will actually position Coveo as a leader in e-commerce AI. And so that's kind of what I did. Uh, in the yeah. last couple of years yeah it's a really good way of looking at it actually like when you're in that scrappy like startup phase everyone has to roll their sleeves up you've got to build models do some like you said do some sequel work if you have to like jump into a strategy meeting an investor meeting like take a client out for lunch like you've got to do all of that and still trying to build a really world-class ai product whereas yeah when you start getting bigger or you get acquired you can maybe distill some of that to other people and then choose, like you said, what, what you're best at. We've already talked about it quite a lot, actually, but you're quite heavily involved in the in the kind of MLOps community. I know you've done 
interviews with Dimitrios and a few other people, when was there a kind of realization for you or for Ortuzo that this kind of MLOps thing that now everyone agrees as a as a kind of standardized term? When did you guys come across this and, and realize it was going to be something that was quite important for, from a kind of production point of view? Yeah, I, I think that goes back to the point that we made earlier, which is I kind of suck at all of these things. So <laughs> I really like I really like the the MLOps ecosystem or what is developing because there's a lot of tools that are kind of solving for my you know be, being not that good at my job. Um, and when I built Tuzo, there wasn't there right. I had to build all of this by myself. I I, I built like a crappy DBT, uh, same concept, but it was you know sucked because I built it. And then, you know, I built a crappy, you know, like in serving layer, you know, kind of, I mean, it did it at the end of the day, it's surprising it did its job, but you know what I mean? It was very far from, from the type of sophistication that you can find today in the market. And so last year we set up to answer this question. It's like, if we had to rebuild Tuzo today, which, what are the choices that we made that we're going to make again? And the answer is basically zero. The answer is also not just zero, is like several talks, a paper and a relatively popular open source repo, which is called You Don't Need a Bigger Boat because I'm famous for my titles. Um, so, and, and, the, and, and the idea is uh, everything that we built with sweating and nights and, you know, and, and, you know, sweating bloods and, you know, and tears, now you can just kind of buy it if, or, or download it if you know how the pieces fit together. Thanks God we know how the pieces fit together because we, we did that end-to-end -end several times. So I know where, where the things interface to each other, but now I don't have to do the boxes anymore. Now I just have to do the glue basically, because everything else is kind of taken care of by amazing either products or open source solution in the community. So it's a fantastic yeah. moment to be machine learning because you don't have to do much anymore. If you know, if you know where to look, you don't have to do much anymore. So it's amazing. Yeah, no, no, it's really interesting. And it's some, well, you've got loads of interesting, like you said, the, um, the repo and some blogs on Medium as well. And you talked about like MLOps without much ops. So like, what did you mean by that part? Like, where, where does, where do the, why do you not need much ops? I think a lot of people overestimate the type of challenges or the type of complexity they need to actually run successfully machine learning pipelines. Um, and our argument is that, you know, at the reasonable scale, which is, you know, kind of these weird terms that, that you know, catchy phrase that, that we introduced. Um, if you're not Google and Facebook, at the end of the day, there's no reason to maintain much infrastructure or being particularly worried about scalability or, or any of this thing. Because again, some tools solve that for you. And in my experience, the bottleneck at this scale is never infra, is always people. So if you have few people, uh, which is already hard to hire and retain in a very competitive market, you don't want them to do lower level things like maintaining a Kubernetes cluster or spinning a GPUs or something like that. They're, these are necessary. I'm not saying that we don't need that, but the job of our of us as leaders, is, I think, is to build teams where people can be end-to-end -end productive without ever touching infrastructure, and they just can use their time of what provides value for the company. That's why I'm saying you, you can do ML without without much operational stuff. And we did a lot of repos and evangelization of like, hey, this is a solution that worked for us in a relatively sophisticated and kind of hard, you know, vertical like e-commerce. So it may not be the solution for you. It may not be where you end, but it's a good start. Comes yeah. with batteries included. We also open source a lot of data. Like, you know, start with this. And, and you kind of get this end-to-end -end in 10 minutes with one person. And then you can start poking goals or deciding where you want to change. But that's kind of the spirit. Like, as I always, you know, if we can do it, 
you can do it as well. That's that's the optimistic message about this. Yeah, I think I think I read something that you wrote that a slightly larger AWS bill is better than having multiple expensive data scientists, like you said, worried about the infrastructure, not the model. Yeah, yeah. People, in my experience, people tend to be a terrible way of spending money uh, <laughs> if you're building a company. Uh, people scales very badly and they're not predictable. Like It's very hard to understand how much a new person is going to contribute to a team. Well, it's very easy to understand how much a new GPU is going to cost or is, you know how much training is going to get me out of it. So my philosophy for teams is always small team, as small as from the outside, you would think that you are severely understaffed, <laughs> um, but, everybody's, but, but everybody's super good. So you may end up spending exactly as much as amount of, you know, like a larger team with being a bit less selective on the type of people you have. But in my experience, small team beats large team any day of the year, less communication, less overhead, much tighter group, much more alignment, much more fun. Uh, again, as long as you keep the people doing fun stuff and not debugging Spark. Yeah. And also, I suppose like, so yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and we're really keen to follow, I read some of the stuff you had on that and like hiring a small talented team that work end to end and grow as you need to, not just for the sake of it. Like that's exactly what we're trying to do. And, but the interesting point you made earlier and what, what, what do you think the way around this is for some companies where, yeah, you get to the point of, fortune 500 company or government client or whatever and they say to you well you're only a team of seven so like you obviously can't work on this stuff like and the way you did it was partner with bigger companies right that's probably the best answer it is but it's not so the ideal world is a world where people judge you by what you can do and not by how many lawyers you can pay yeah, that would be good. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, this unfortunately, unfortunately, is not this world. It's not the world we live in. Um, so, so every solution is somehow subpar and some optimal compared to you know the ideal standard, which would be everybody being a bit more of a rational agent uh, than than it is. Uh, so, partnering up is a good thing. The other thing is, if you build a pro, you don't have to build a product for high end for Fortune five hundred. We were forced to do that because of the economics of the e commerce market, and I'm happy to elaborate on that. But there's a lot of successful company, way more successful than our company, that actually hijacked the problem by building a solution that is geared toward, you know, different price point, maybe small and medium businesses, you know, less uh, security or like, you know, less strategic constraint. And there's a lot of companies are super successful in doing that. Uh, it was the, going up market for us was a necessity by, by the combination of the type of product we built and the type of market we were facing. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because there's always... Um... I think you said this as well, that there's loads of companies that aren't Facebook, Airbnb, Netflix, whatever, that can actually still have huge success from machine learning. They just don't need to worry about most of the stuff you read about MLOps and ML at scale and all these things. Loads of the stuff you end up Googling or reading about is about how Netflix did something as opposed to how a large construction company in the UK might be able to use some machine learning. Like, yeah, you, you don't really get to read that stuff, right? Absolutely. Which is, you know, part of the, our whole thing of the reasonable scale, right? It's like there's a spectrum of, of content and the internet is very good on uh, a tutorial on Flask app serving scikit-learn, <laughs> you know, D0, and then what Uber builds. Okay. Yeah. But chances are most people are in this reasonable scale in the middle when they kind of go past the, the sidekick learn tutorial, but they they are not. They will probably never be, but certainly they're not now Uber. 
And it's pointless to architect for a future where you may be Uber. Uh, I always make the example of like, you know, Roger, like, you know, we're always trying to learn how to play tennis in this field. But the only content we consume is Roger Federer training clip. And Roger Federer is amazing and he's very inspirational. But the chances of any of us becoming Roger Federer is slim. And certainly not now. Like we need to just get the, the back end and the forehand on the other side of the net. Okay. And start rolling a bit. And then maybe one day we'll be Roger Federer. But right now talking about Roger Federer is most an inspirational talk. It doesn't do us any, any good. And also it creates the false impression, especially non-technical people and executive and business people that at the end of the day, may be more sensitive to this impression than to actual facts, that ML requires huge investment to, to produce ROI. That's false. It requires huge investment, all in certain condition, and mostly if you're doing it wrong. <laughs> and again, our effort in the open source is like, hey, this is a project that works at terabyte scale and it will produce value and needs one person to run. If that doesn't work, it's mostly about the process in your company not working, not about ML being this fantastic magic box that only a few people in the world can understand. Yeah. Maybe that was true five years ago when the bar was very high. When we built tools, the bar was very high even to do basic stuff. And this yeah. way, you know, you have several advantage of, you know, like you, you, you know, you have people with PhD, you have people with experience and so on. But now the bar is not that high anymore. I'm not saying it's trivial, but it's not the bar anymore. And keeping on forcing this narrative of like, oh my God, you need to spend a lot of money to do this. I don't think it's true. I think you need to spend the money wisely, which is yeah. very different, which is a very different problem. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're bang on. And you mentioned kind of open source, or we've talked about open source quite a lot. And also you mentioned you can actually buy some stuff as well. Is that like, is that a key decision for a lot of companies is like, what can they... What can they open source? What can they get? Like what you said, we've got this thing that works terabyte scale. If you can, you should be able to make this work versus when they have to buy something. That's often a decision that people get wrong, right? Yes. Um, in, in our experience, so we're a bit picky. So our, our, our whole project is always built on a combination of things you buy and things you choose open source. The general, quest, the general point for us on buying is always infrastructure. Remember again, for a previous point, I suck at that. So everybody that offered me a hosting, like a way for me to not worrying too much about maintenance, hosting and so on, tends to get a win from my side. But I'm very extreme. One of the few, because if you ask coders, they always want to build. But if you ask me, I almost always want to buy. If it's not what I'm doing, it's always want to buy because it saves me a lot of time. And I can always walk back from that, right? If I buy Prefect uh, as, a, as a cloud service, I can, at some point, if I get tired of it, I can just internalize that. It's much harder to do the opposite stuff because now I have to spend, you know, two months of an engineer to set it up and so on, and then to realize I could have just bought it in, and, and solved it in a week. So buying stuff also in the beginning, if you're unsure where your value is and how your value chain of data is composed, also gets you to streamline the process. You pay a bit more upfront, but then you save a lot of time when you iterate. And then when you find out what you what you really want to do, you can always come back and and, and swap that. There's no there's no shortage of choices in any part of the pipeline. Again, that was true in 2017. It's not true now. If you can't build a good machine learning pipelines with tools that are out there, that's on you. It's not on the market, on the ecosystem. That's really on you. That's your fault. The main problem now is there's too many tools. <laughs> that, 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 that's true, but then that's your, that's your ability as a senior man. You know, that's why some people you know, like are senior, like whatever experience, so to just cut through the noise and say, hey, we start with these four pieces and then we go from there. Which is always the, the suggestion that I give to people that want to start in this, they want to start a team in this is instead of buying five random people 
because you know PyTorch, by one or two people that see the end to it, they really understand how these old things are connected. And I did it before. Pay them well. They're going to be expensive people. There are many of them. But make them happy. And then once they figure out the baseline, hire other people. Because you will find out they will hire way less people than when you thought if you build the foundation right. Well, if you just get five people that never did it before, now they're going to run on notebooks for, for a year. And you're going to waste five people's salaries. Uh, so my suggestion is always don't compromise on your first head of AI or head of ML or whatever hire, because that's going to set the standard for everybody to work on. Yeah. This is money that is good invested. Like pay these people well, make these people happy, make these people empowered to make good decision. And you're going to reap the rewards 10 times instead of just going on a hiring spree of 10 random people and just put them in a room with notebooks and, and see what they can do. <laughs> yeah. And then wonder why you don't get return on investment. <laughs> um, yeah, no, you're, you're totally right. And then lastly, then uh, just to finish off, but you mentioned this a little bit already in terms of like how your role changed and, and the focus that you've got at Caveo, but you're pretty involved in the kind of machine learning, MLOps communities. You speak at lots of events. You've got, I think I'm right in saying, you've got, uh, or you just finished, uh, it wasn't a hackathon, but like uh, a competition, a challenge. Right? Yeah, we, we have a yeah, data, data challenge running for CIGM. Yeah, so it's, it's still running. So join us. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And yeah, so, and you do loads of stuff like that. And is that, when you were looking at this new role in, in Coveo and kind of where you wanted to add value, was that one of these areas where you thought like, I really want to be involved in that space and contribute back to the community, but also make some noise about what you guys are doing and, and do things like this as well? Like, is that something naturally that you just want to, to be involved in? That's a good question. And the answer is partly yes and partly no. So there are two main communities that we've been involved in as a team. The e-commerce tech and AI community, that goes more on the data challenge, uh, top tier conferences, publishing paper, open sourcing data. And that's kind of more natural compared to the, the people that we are, our background, our academic connection, you know, the ability, which I think has been, has been pretty good of rallying people together from different companies or different university in specific roadmap that are like shared and then to publish something together. Like we work with Microsoft, Nvidia, Uber, Stanford, Oxford. Well, we work with a lot of, with this international network of people. And then I think it was kind of like well-suited consider my past history, my ability, my connections, and, you know, and, you know, and kind of like, you know, my funny Italian accent when I go and talk about these things. So that was the easy part. Uh, and, uh, and I'm very proud of, you know, kind of like, you know, of Coveo being able to always be next to Netflix and Twitter and Amazon in these conferences, even, you know, with, of course, a very different, very different, um, you know, size. Uh, the MLOps part has been different. I've been using open source my entire life and I was never in a position or with enough time or with enough knowledge to contribute back. So it was actually, uh, I was actually very happy when, when I discovered that some of the things that I started open source on the MLOps were actually useful to other people. And so that kind of grew on me as a way to give back to the community. Again, if one fool can do it, another one can. So my message is always, if I did this and I did this, this, you know, you can do it. You can also do it. And that was a really refreshing, and I and I and I really I'm really happy to to have gotten some karma point from my previous life where I was just using open source without ever contributing to now where I actually am a you know relatively like after contribution in several open source projects. So that has been a nice side effect and kind of like surprising at it. Yeah, and it's one of the nice things about open source, right? You can, it's more tangible. Like you can see that you can contribute back, and you can see those projects take off or become something on its own or be acquired or whatever it might be but you, you can see that journey a lot clearer so giving back is actually quite a, like you said kind of good karma almost 
Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So that's it's it's, it's been great. Honestly, both these communities, which don't really talk to each other much, because you know the AI fancy model community and the MLOps very practical thing, they tend to have not many 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 intersection. So I'm one of the few people that have you know that is is, is you know what is his feet in both shoes or something like that. But they're both very nice communities, and I learn a lot uh, from both of them. And so I look forward also in the future to even you know, contribute and be involved more. Yeah. No, no, it sounds good. Well, well, thank you so much for joining. I'm glad we got to do this. I think the, the Tuzo story and the Covert story is awesome. And um, I know that we keep an eye on what you guys are doing now. And we've got our event next week, depending on when this podcast goes out. But we've got an event that people should look out for where we're going to talk about ML Flow, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Metaflow. Yes. Metaflow. Sorry. We can take yeah. that about Metaflow. <laughs> Yeah, uh, they're all yeah, they're, yeah, they're all yes, you know, like all the names like tend to flow, all the names tend to resemble each other. So yeah, the, the community is good at tooling, but not in naming. That's that's for sure. Yeah, people should be. Yeah, you should get extra points for naming different <laughs> from everything else. Um, Absolutely. Th- thanks so much for having me. It was a it was a blast, and thanks so much for you know for being interested in our story. I'm super super happy to be here. No, thank you so much. Thank you.